2: In today's episode of Project Recovery. It was just like, what do I have to stay sober for? Everything's already been taken away. Like I just lost like my girl. I just lost my little boy. My family I just had for the last few years. Now it's like all gone. Like everything I've been working for. Yeah, I'm gonna go get high.
3: Make sure you listen to the end. Find us on Facebook at Project Recovery. We'll have that and much more coming up. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction, but more importantly, it's about recovery, and it's brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. Uh, without them, we couldn't do this podcast. If you're wondering where we are in the opioid epidemic currently right now, uh, they've got some great information there, how to talk to yourself, talk to your doctor, talk to your loved ones, talk to family. Uh, it's just chock full of good information, and we love them at
1: knowyourscript.org. Dr. Matt, fresh off a of vacation. Right. Where did you go? So I went up to McCall, Idaho, had a great time. I actually got to, uh, I, I got up there and realized I had to teach a lecture the next day. So in, that's one of my favorite things about the era of Zoom. Oh. I was able to sit out on the patio in McCall, Idaho. Did you have pants on or pants off? Pants on. Very professional. Of course. But, but big pine trees in the background. It was it was wonderful. So yeah, great place to relax.
3: And just go there, recharge the
1: batteries. Yeah. We uh, you know floated on the lake. I got to do meditation out. So the house we rented was on a pond, which is just very close to Lake Payette. Mm-hmm. Um, and every morning I could go out on the boat and meditate on the water. And then we went out to the lake and ate good food and had good friends there. It was a lot of fun.
3: I want to ask you a little bit about meditation because I've had a, quite a few people reach out to me on Facebook and Instagram wanting to know more about meditation. I actually had a good conversation this morning in the gym with a guy who wanted to know more about meditation and breathing. But uh, you probably do it a lot more than I do. I Unfortunately, I use meditation uh, like uh, – like a fire extinguisher. In okay. case of emergency. It could be used that way. Meditate. Sure. You know what I mean? And when I find myself having panic attacks late at night or mm-hmm. in a situation that I can't get out, I kind of just turn everything off, sit there, breathe, and and, and just kind of – I think of my problems, and I actually learned this in rehab, as clouds. And, you know, floating by in my head. And sure. so the cloud will stop. I'll give it its – uh, you know – attention that's needed and then i let it float by in my addiction that dark cloud would hang over my head and follow me everywhere (laughs) i go now i acknowledge it i give it its importance and if there's something i can do to help fix that or change that then i can do that if not then i just let it float by and so that's how i use meditation in my catastrophizing yes but you use it
1: daily I do. Yeah, you bet. Um, Meditation can be used like a treatment, and that's what you're describing. So you're having stress, you're having anxiety, uh, learning how to you know, regulate your breathing, calm your mind, focus. Uh, It's a wonderful way to handle those sorts of things. It can also be used uh, preventatively Mm -hmm. as a preventive measure. So uh, somebody like myself who does transcendental meditation, uh, the goal is twice a day for 20 minutes at a time. And so I try to get up and do that in the morning and then do that in the evening. Um, and that keeps your mind uh, focused, calm, and restorative. And what I really like about that is the research backs it up. So, uh, if you there are quite a few uh, neuropsych uh, research, research articles that indicate that after about eight to 10 weeks of daily transcendental meditation, you can actually measure prefrontal cortex density increasing with an MRI. So they've done studies, and all that really means is that that those frontal lobes, the most human part of our brain judgment focus reason concentration all of that Mm -hmm. um, is getting denser myelinating making connections so it's like a workout for your brain so the gym yeah and a lot of people uh, in fact a lot of celebrities like Jerry Seinfeld or Ellen DeGeneres feel like a lot of their ability to focus concentrate work hard and be successful comes from their daily meditations and I've noticed when I If I slack and get out of the habit, um, I feel the difference.
3: I mean, I feel the difference if I go a day without going to the gym. I right. think the body knows. It's funny. When I was in my active addiction, I used to say, routines, I hate routines. Yeah. I'm a fly-by-the-seat-of-pants kind of guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm going to ride the wave wherever it takes me. I'm going to rock and roll. Let's do this. Right. Turns out I love a routine.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I'm a big fan of a routine, man, especially as we get older, uh, having a routine actually helps calm your anxiety because anxiety is a focus on future events that we perceive little future control tripping. over. Yeah. Or like you say, future tripping. Uh, so if you have a routine, you don't know exactly how your future is going to be, but you can predict it pretty closely. Like if you're like, oh, I know what my day is going to be like, mm-hmm. uh, there may be some surprises that pop up. But for the most part, your anxiety and worry will stay at bay because you're not future tripping.
3: And if you've ever wanted to take a guided uh, meditation, you can go back through the feed on the Project Recovery podcast page. Uh, we've got actually guided meditations given to you by our own Dr. Matt Woolley. Uh, I think we've got three there. We should probably do some more coming up because I think people sure. do like them. And it's a great way to introduce somebody into uh,
1: meditation. Uh, there's all
3: kinds of great apps out there. I know there's Calm and Headspace.
1: Those are my two favorite, uh, mostly because they have some... Um, research to back them up, that they're quality. And the things.
3: cool thing is because I've spent some time on Calm is that you can go in there and go, I need a meditation for sleep. And they've got a bunch of sleep mm-hmm. meditations. I need some for clarity. And they've got them there. Energy, whatever you want. They've got different subcategories that you can go and kind of fill your need. And it's just a great
1: way to see what it's all about. Guided meditation is a really good place to start. If you're thinking, do I want to try to meditate? Um, find a guided meditation and all you really need to do is listen and follow the voice. And then eventually you can do your own meditation.
3: There was a mean girl in seventh grade who used to do this to me all the time. Meditate on this. <laughs> really?
1: Yeah. Flip you the bird? <laughs>
3: yeah. Wow. <And> I, <laughs> I wish she was way ahead of her time. O-Town. <laughs> yeah, biggity-biggity-O. <laughs> While you were up on the lake in Idaho uh, recharging your batteries and meditating with the family, Yeah. I was DJing a 51st uh, uh, class reunion. 51st. class, yeah. Well wow. They were supposed to be their 50th. That was going to be their big oh, one. Oh, okay. But COVID. Well, I had the 31st this year, so I get that. So I'm at the 51st class reunion for Ogden High Tigers. Ogden High School football rules, by the way. Well, that's what I hear, yeah. And uh, this guy came up to me, and he goes, I just want to tell you how good you are doing. And I go, well, thank you. And I was like, so do you listen to the podcast? He goes, no. I was here 10 years ago, and you were a wreck. <laughs> Oh, seriously? I did DJ the reunion (laughs) 10 years ago. That's awesome. And he goes, you were a wreck. He said, I was hoping, I've been following your story on Facebook, and I was hoping that you would be here. Yeah. And I want to tell you. That this has been a lot of fun, and I think you're doing amazing.
1: That is cool. What a cool, like, before and after yeah. snapshot by somebody you didn't even know. Yeah, so he said, yeah, 10 – and I – I meant you were a wreck because you were dr- drinking. I was drunk. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, back
3: in the day, yeah. I mean, yeah, that was not good because DJ right. jobs normally happen at the end of the day. Oh, and right. I usually started drinking at the beginning of the day. Yeah. And so it was a long day. Yeah. And, you know, I, yeah, it's a couple of, I mean, I've ruined m- many events. How did that make you feel when he came it up to you? It made me feel good. Yeah. Until three ladies came up to me afterwards and goes, I don't remember going to school with you. And I was like, cause I wasn't even born yet. <laughs> Put your glasses on lady. What do you mean? This is blonde. Yeah. This isn't gray. You know, I know it's blonde cause I bleach it. Uh, that's humbling, yeah, but I swear, hundred percent true. Three people come up and say, like, yeah. now did I go to class with you?" And I was like, "No, lady." How old do
1: you think you are, yeah, lady? I was—you
3: graduated in nineteen seventy. I was born in nineteen seventy-four.
1: That's hilarious.
3: That's funny. Yeah, know. but it was a good time, and you know, it, it, it's constant reminders like that throughout my week, and I get three or four of them where people will say things like that, and then I'll get three or four reminders a week of. My past, you know, whether it's Facebook or somebody going, "Hey, I remember," you know, telling a story. And sometimes I think they're trying to
1: help. Are, or are, they, are they try? I was wondering, are they trying to? Because what a lot of people listening to this show may not know is, you don't always get love on social media. No. That's usually what we talk about. Yeah, but but unfortunately, if you're sort of a public figure, and if you've had an incident like you've had that was public. Um, there's a lot of what do we call them haters out oh, yeah. there? People yeah. that love to not fans of Casey. Put what you I call down, them. yeah. No, that's a good, that's a good, yeah. nice description of yeah. them. Yeah, not fans of Casey. Not fans of Casey. And so people may not realize that you you end up reading those things as well.
3: And it's okay because they deserve their opinion, and I would love a chance to change their mind, but I I can't spend all my time in that area. Uh, When I celebrated my three-year anniversary, I put a before and after photo there, and and it was awesome. Um, And in that, I said, I want to thank everybody who supported me. I also want to thank everybody who doubted me because they were just as important in my recovery as those who supported me. How so? Because it gave me fuel, and it gave me fire. I'm not going to tell – I'm competitive you know what i mean and 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 i've got that in me and the best thing you can do to me is tell me you can't do this mm-hmm. cuz the, the thing inside of me goes watch it used to be hold my beer and <laughs> i'll show you that i can do this yeah now it's just watch yeah doubt me I, I i dare you yeah because
1: i will do it well i think that that's a that's a healthy outlet for competition you know when you realize somebody's doubting that you can make positive changes if that fuels you a little bit, I think that's great.
3: You know, I can tell you that I have won some over, the, won some of the haters over in the three years. Have you? The first year, people are like, "I don't think this is going to last." Let's see, right. you know. And then you get to the second year, and people. Well, there have like,
1: been a lot of people in the. Well, I shouldn't say a lot. There have been several media folks that have really struggled in their first year of trying to be sober. So I know that.
3: Yeah, but it's not know. just media folks. It's also it's. Pretty common in recovery. Oh no,
1: I mean it is, but I mean yeah, but, you were kind of doing your thing at the same time. A few other people had yeah. lost their jobs and they were doing their thing. And I think I think a lot of people doubted that you could do it. But
3: people have now, after three years, um, you know, going okay, man. I think I think you might be onto something. Yeah. I think this might be, as they say in the recovery world, authentic. Yeah. Maybe he's doing this for the right reasons. I'm here to tell you I am. I'm 100% doing them for the right reasons. And the right reason isn't to get my job back on TV. The right reason isn't for uh, accolades from the general public. The right reason is because I'm a better person this way. Yeah. I'm a better father this way. I'm a better ex-husband this way. I'm a better boyfriend this way. I'm all around better this way. And those are the reasons why I'm doing it. It's not All that other stuff is great, and, and I love it, and it does mean the world to me, but – that's and not you've why. had a
1: lot of great opportunities come your way as people have started to trust that you really are. Guess who's the yeah.
3: new on-field game
1: guy for Weber State Wildcats? What?
3: Yeah. Weber State, Weber State, great, great, great. Yeah, Waldo the Wildcat, man. I grew up there skating on that
1: at that place. So you're gonna wear the costume? No, no, no. no, no. no, no. But
3: like in between timeouts, oh, in between time, okay. in timeouts, I come I out like, I was like oh, who I wants I a T-shirt in the
1: costume? I that was would be amazing. The
3: Ogden High Tiger
1: mascot. Shut up. I was. You were. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. It
3: was so much fun putting that thing on because yeah. you could do anything.
1: I bet you could. <laughs> so you're going to be on field doing commentary.
3: Well, no, just running the games in between timeouts, shooting out T-shirts, uh, thinking sponsors and whatever they want me to do. But it was honored for them to call me up and go, "Hey, definitely." Yeah, do you want to do this? I was like, Yes, I would well, love and that to that.
1: absolutely shows that they trust you. Yeah. They trust that you're on the right path for the right reasons.
3: Yeah. So everything's going great and I'm excited to do this. I love doing this every week with you. I love the fact that Josh he's better back there in the in the quiet, but he's doing oh, he just held up the horns.
1: Yeah, he's rocking out.
3: We're rocking out. And this podcast is gonna be a great one. Uh we've got uh Cameron, right? We got him as our guest today. He's going to come up and talk about uh, his recovery, what it looks like now, and where he found help, where he didn't think he'd get it. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL.
0: A gun in the face.
1: Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today.
0: Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela.
2: They said, you need to...
0: Or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Hey, everybody! Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist, and our guest today, Cameron Marshall. And uh, Cameron, how's it going, brother?
2: It's going good, man. I'm glad to be here.
3: All right. So this has been in the works for a couple of months. Uh, what are you doing right now to
2: for employment? For employment right now, I'm doing installations for fans and houses now. It's just kind of something that I'm doing to get by. I kind of want to start my own thing, but, you know, just doing that for now. Currently, how
3: much sober time do you have underneath your belt?
2: I have 13 and a half months right now. And that half month Congrats. is important.
3: Huh? Yes, yeah. It's like when you're a little kid and you ask them how tall they are and they go, I'm five, three and a half.
1: Yeah. That half's
3: really important. Because, it is. I mean, because it, it's the small
2: victories, right? Right. And any day it could be different. Yeah. It could start over.
3: You know, it's, it's so important and it's so true because you never know what the day's going to bring you. Right.
2: So let's get to
3: your story. Where does young Cameron grow up?
2: Um, I was born and raised in Payson down in Utah County. And that's where I lived most of my life. Um, I spread around a lot. Like my family moved around a lot. I lived in Mississippi, lived in Oregon when I was younger. So it was just kind of like scattered around. Why did you move so much? So when I was living with my mom, my, she was a single mom, you know, raising four of us. And even though with my dad's help, like they were split up, you know, they split up when I was young. So it was my mom just like working her butt off, you know, so we, she always rented houses and it was like every year after that lease went up, we just moved somewhere else, you know? I went to every elementary school in my hometown. So it was just kind of crazy like moving around that much, you know?
3: Now you said there's four siblings. Where do you uh, rank in the order? So
2: I have five siblings actually. So I have two older brothers and three little sisters. So I'm kind of like right in the middle. Middle child. Yep. There's something to that.
3: And so (laughs) when did, uh,
2: do you remember the first time you tried a substance? Yes, I do. I was 12 actually. And I always hung out with my older brother's friends. And they always kind of got into stupid stuff. So I was hanging out with them one day. We were smoking weed, and then a buddy of mine pulled out some meth, and I didn't really even know or understand what it was at the time, you know. So
1: how long had you been smoking weed? So you were twelve. You said that sort of like, yeah. of course we were smoking weed. Yeah, it was like, <laughs> like it was like, like matter weeks. of fact. Okay. Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, isn't
3: that what all twelve-year-olds are doing?
1: Like at, well, at the time, like in my
2: hometown, like that's how it was, you know, yeah. like. It's such a small, secluded place. Like, it's grown now, but it was either a lot of religion or a lot of drug use. That was, like, the only two spectrums. Well,
1: from one small-town guy to another, there's sometimes not a whole lot to keep you busy right. when you're a kid. Definitely. And so you get into mischief. And and so, yeah, small towns are often a place. I think people who grew up in the big city are surprised that small towns are, are often a place where a lot of drugs and partying happen.
2: Right. And so it's like, you know— I was hanging out with the wrong people and it got me in a bad situation. And so I did it then, you know, I didn't really understand or know like what it was, but just like that feeling, even was that
1: new to everybody in the group smoking meth or was that, were you the, was it just new for you? So it was
2: my older brother's friend and then me. And so he got me to try it Okay, and he had already been doing it. I don't know how long, but he was 16. So like they were in that age group where. You know, Older all the
3: parties they go to. yeah. <laughs> yeah. All you know parties what, he brings up to. A, an interesting point, though. I think ooh, a lot of times when you've got young people who try drugs for the first time, um, I know there's not a contract, but there's kind of an implied contract when you're doing drugs, you know what I mean, that they don't know what they're signing up for. As, you know, Cameron was right. just saying that he was like, I don't know what meth was, you know what I mean, and wasn't very educated on what it was, and had somebody goes, hey, listen, we're going to give you this drug. But chances are, about a ninety percent chance, it's going to ruin your life. Do you still want to do this?
1: Yeah, nobody presents it that way. No, no, they don't. They go like,
3: "This is amazing, right? You got to give this a shot." But yeah. nobody really
2: knows the contract when you try it for the first time. Nobody oh, reads sure. that small print. No, you're yeah. right? no. And it, you know, at the time, it was like in my head, it was my older brother's friend. Like I thought he was like per- protective of me, you know. So I was like, "He's not going to give of me something that's going to mess with me." So of course, I'm going to try it. And so then, you
3: tried meth for the first time at age twelve, yeah, and what what was the feelings it gave you?
2: It was insane, you know, it was a rush, had so much energy, it was just like always wanted to do stuff, and that's like that first time just got me hooked, so you felt like you were hooked after the first time, oh yeah, like i I knew something, even how young I was, like I could just feel something different in my mind, you know, in my brain, and I was like, I kind of like this, like this is all new, like it's exciting, especially you're young like the small town thing it was like this is such a rush, like this makes everything so much better, makes all the dull stuff amazing, you know Dr.
3: Matt's probably gonna ask you about uh, your childhood and were you were you carrying any baggage
2: into uh you know oh definitely. age twelve definitely i so like I said before, my mom you know she was a single mom, and she raised us by herself, and she's got her own addictions she has been an alcoholic for a long time. It's demons she's fighting right now, trying to get sober. And I think she's almost a year right now, so I'm proud of her for that. But that just like growing up with an alcoholic mom, like my older brothers lived with my dad, so it was just it was me like at home with my little sisters, you know.
1: And so Do you feel a lot of responsibility for the
2: little sisters? Yeah. Like I was the man of the house. Like my mom worked at a bar when I was young, so it was like my mom worked really late hours so it was like i'd get home from school take care of my little sisters and that was like my life and making
1: dinner and yeah all like, that stuff
2: i i feel like my childhood was like taken from me you know and so like i held a lot of resentment for that mm-hmm. and i it took me a long time to like let go of that resentment but how far i've come with like just being there for now and like accepting it and like it wasn't her fault like she busted her butt for us and did everything for us but That put a lot of stress on me and a lot of weight on me. So,
1: that's a healthy perspective to have now as an adult, right? Right. Um, It helps you, you know, repair your relationship with your mom. But when you're a kid and you're 12 and you just want to go out and have fun, but you know, you've got to take care of the little sisters at home Mm -hmm. and mom's not going to be home till real late. I mean, how did that, how did you feel at that time? You know, like it was
2: like angering because it was like, you know, I wanted to go hang out with my friends, I wanted to do stuff, and I didn't realize it at the time. Like, all the demons my mom was dealing with, you know, like I didn't see it from that perspective. So I was just like, you're putting all this on me, you know, right. I'm only 12. I should be out hanging out with my friends right now, 13, like living. And it's like, you know, I had to take on that responsibility because it was like, okay, who's going to take care of my little sisters.
3: I think this just puts an explanation point on the fact that addiction is a family disease. And, you know, a lot of times it's passed down generation to generation, so at 12 you're running around on meth in a, a small town in Utah. Yep. Uh do you find yourself getting in trouble? How does a 12-year-old get meth?
2: Like I said, like I was always hanging out with older people, so they always knew where to get it, you know. It was kind of like the old thing back in the day where you had your brother's friends buy your beer for you or whatever, you know. And so definitely I got into a lot of trouble, like I was getting in a lot of fights at school. I was just like always pissed off, always wanted to fight and didn't really like understand it, you know, like didn't have that perspective back then of like, that's what was going on with my home life. That's why I was doing all this stuff.
1: Yeah. Well, you don't, I mean, uh, the default emotion for most little boys is anger, right. right? When things aren't going well, boys get angry and act out. And it's almost always the case that when a guy that age, you know, 11, 12, 13, if you're, if you're fighting a lot, we kind of have to look at the home life and see what's going on. Usually there's a lot of pressure right. and it sounds like you were carrying around a lot of pressure and responsibility that uh, you, you didn't understand and you weren't ready for.
2: No, I definitely wasn't. And it was, you know, my brother had got to the point with it. That's why he moved in with my dad too, you know, cause he was like, I can't do this with our mom anymore. Like she gets drunk, she gets crazy, she gets violent. And it was like, that was my defense mechanism, you know, it was like my anger. It was like, when she was like that, I felt like I had to protect my little sisters. okay. Because like when my mom got drunk, it was me she came after every time, not like my little sisters, you know? And you thought if you weren't there Then it would be a lot different situation, you know. Like I I knew it wasn't a safe environment for my little sisters. That's a lot of responsibility for a young man. Definitely. So how does high school go for you? High school when I was when I was fifteen is when my mom like finally was like, I can't do this anymore with you. Like You're always getting into trouble. Like, you're always fighting. You're always getting suspended. You're getting caught with drugs. I'm finding drugs in your room. And so she was like, You're moving in with your dad. Like, I can't handle it anymore. And I was like, All right. And I think at the time, like, I was almost hoping for that Mm -hmm. because it was to a point where, like, my little sisters were older and my little sister could take care of my twin youngest sisters. And so it was like, That was my ticket out. It was like, I can't do this anymore. This is too much for. Someone my age, you know, and like I had that realization then and I was like, OK, like send it. I'll I'll go to dad's. I'm out of here. And as soon as I moved in with my dad, like everything changed for a couple of years. And it was like. Change for the good or change for the change bad? for the good. It was like a routine like you were talking about earlier, you know, um, just having that routine of like my dad was stable about it. He was like, you're going to have a routine. You're going to do this. You're going to go to school. You're going to do all your stuff. And that's it.
1: And did you fall into line,
2: or did you kind I of, I did. Yep. And it was just that structure that helped so much, you know, and just, like, having a parent instead of being the parent was, like, a, it was different.
1: Well, it's—I it, mean, that's—even uh, though kids may rebel against it a little bit, uh, that's what kids want and need. They want somebody to be in charge. They Until they're old enough, until you're a young adult, you can do it yourself. But it feels comforting to have somebody— Tell you to do your homework and go to bed and take a shower. and Tell you you it's okay instead
2: of you having to tell somebody it's okay. Yeah.
1: The term for that is adultified or parentified when a child who isn't ready for that responsibility gets given that responsibility. And um, it does, like you said, it robs you of that normal childhood development time, the innocence and the ability to just kind of be in your own world and be creative instead of having to take responsibility for others. Um eventually, uh, it's good for us to learn how to do that, obviously, but uh, one of the things that will often, ha- often happen is when a person loses some or all of that childhood time, then as an adult, they regress to an adolescent or childhood-like state and start to act and behave in really immature ways. And you're looking at somebody who's 30, and you're like, yeah, this guy acts like he's 12 or 14. That's exactly you know, what happened with that, that happened to you? Yeah.
2: I lived my teenage years in my 20s. Yeah. Yeah. I did all my partying in my 20s.
3: While you were in high school uh, and you moved in with your dad, did you give up the drugs while you were living with your dad for those two good years you said?
2: So when I moved down there, like it got to a point where, like, you know, I was familiar with people down there. Where's St. down there? St. George, sorry. St. George, okay. So when I moved down there, you know, I was cold turkey off everything and I met some friends at school and they, they just smoked weed. So like I, I started smoking weed down there and. It just like it turned into something to where it was just like me replacing that addiction. Like I was smoking weed like you shouldn't smoke weed. You know, Mm -hmm. it was just like in excess, like crazy. And I was like, all I'm doing is replacing something else for something else, a substance. Which often is the case for any
3: addict. I mean, it's I think Keaton, he was one of our first guests. He goes, I didn't discriminate against any drug He goes, I had my preferences. (laughs) But if I couldn't find that, I was taking whatever I could get. Right. And I was overindulging in that. Yeah, and, then that,
2: you, and then you justify it to yourself. You're like, okay, it's not my DOC. Like, I'm doing good. Yeah. You know, like you justify it to yourself right. and it's stupid because it's like, you know.
1: Well, a lot of people do that with weed, I think. They'll say, well, it's not heroin or it's not meth. Right. You know, or it's not even alcohol. It's, you know, people talk about weed nowadays like it's a vitamin.
3: Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Hey, we're going to hear what happened to uh, Cameron after two years down in St. George. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Cameron Marshall. He said he moved down to St. George, and for two years, I was doing pretty good.
1: He said, uh, "What he sort happened?" Of, he, he created a situation where he got kicked out. <laughs> I think yep. that's that's the that's <laughs> fabricated the stri- it, you know, yeah, and then moved down with dad. Mm-hmm. Would you to- say
3: fabricated or manifested? Because I think a lot of times we do that.
2: Manifested,
1: yeah, yeah,
2: you know, I think just like my energy putting it out to the world, like I wasn't even realizing that I was doing it, but I was just like running amok and I didn't think about it, like I didn't care about it, I didn't care like who I was hurting at the time. It was like,
1: but you were needing a more stable yeah, environment, I and not an escape route, that be, you know, rebelliousness and behavior, anger, it sort of led you to that or manifested that in your life, right? And you said you liked the fact that your dad was more structured,
2: oh, yeah, and like. It's just amazing. Like my dad has always been an amazing father. Like, you know, I can go to him and be like, dad, I need to talk to you as a friend or dad, I need to talk to you as dad. Mm -hmm. And like, it's no problem. And he's always been like that. And he's my number one supporter, you know, and just, he knew I needed structure. Like he knew how much I was messing up and he knew how much I was struggling, you know? And I knew I needed to get out of that. Like, even at that age, I was like, I'm going to do some stupid stuff if I keep going down this road.
1: You could feel it coming, huh? Yeah,
2: I was just like, with how it's going already, like you just get that feeling in your gut, you know? Mm -hmm. I think that was just my way of like manifesting it. It was just like, let's do everything we can to get out of here.
1: But you said when you got to St. George, you made new friends and fell into sort of another addictive process, and that was smoking a lot of marijuana.
2: Yeah, and so it was like I'd smoke a lot. I'd still go to school. I'd still get my schoolwork done, but it was like I was just replacing it, and every time I was hanging out with friends, all I was doing was smoking weed we're going to concerts and it was just like it mellowed out and I stopped smoking weed. I ended up getting in a relationship and a relationship I had for six years after that. Oh, okay. And I'd got clean. Like, um, I got clean for her. Like she wanted me to stop smoking weed. So I did. And it lasted a long time. And all it took from being down there for two years was one trip up here to visit some family. And I ran into some friends at a party and there was some heroin there and ended up doing heroin.
1: Had you done heroin before that? Uh, no, not till I was 16. Okay. So you were, at what age did you go to St. George, 14?
2: Yeah, 14, 15.
1: Yeah. And you were doing, despite smoking a lot of weed, you were going to school. Yep. Did you end up graduating from high school?
2: No, I actually didn't. And okay. that that's due to like a lot of my addiction stuff too. I only made it to 10th grade, man.
1: Made it to 10th grade and that's... <laughs> That's I guess you're 16 in 10th grade. People are, right? So that's when the heroin happened? Yep. Tell us more about that. So I came up
2: here for a trip back up to Utah County and ran to some friends, went to a party. There was heroin there. I did some heroin, and it was like the best feeling in the world.
3: You say it so matter-of-fact because I think – I mean, even in the craziness that I put myself in, if I walked in and there was heroin, I'd be like – (laughs) <laughs> right. Yeah, you, yeah. you know what I mean? I mean, I, I, my mind would be blown. I was like, I've heard about it, but what? But down in Utah County, pretty pretty normal.
2: Yeah, it really is. like when I was growing up in that and like going to all these parties, it was like you didn't go to a party where somebody didn't have meth or heroin or weed or pills or anything like Which that. Which blows my mind. Yeah, The, the least yeah. thing people were doing was drinking, you know, because everybody was too messed up on everything else to even drink. Like people would buy all this alcohol for parties and then just get... Messed up on other stuff the whole time, you know? <laughs> so it's growing up and
1: hanging out with the older brothers and their friends, this just kind of seemed like what people do at parties. Huh? Yeah.
2: yeah. And so it was like, I didn't even think about it. It was just like instant reaction. It was like, yeah, like give me some. So I started smoking heroin and I was hiding it from my girlfriend at the time. And we ended up getting engaged and I was just like playing a lie. Like she did. I had no idea I was using and I would just come up here on the weekends every weekend and like stock up on heroin and then take it back down to St. George with me and live with her and her LDS family. And like, nobody had any idea. Like I hit it so well and it was like sickening how well I hit it. How does somebody hide heroin? You know
3: what I mean? I mean, that's the thing that that I, I I don't get. I mean, mean, does it make you not off? Does it? Oh yeah.
2: Like I honestly, to this day, I don't know how I got away with it for so long. I did for four years.
1: Some of that might be, you know, you said LDS, which is the the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And uh, part of their religious practice is no drugs or alcohol at all, ever. And so if they were an active LDS family, maybe they didn't really know what they were seeing. They thought you were just a kind of a weird kid or something.
2: See, the crazy thing is, is that um, her dad was actually a police officer. Like he used to be a police oh, officer. Okay. And that's what like blew my <laughs> so mind. He should have known. That's, yeah. that's what blew my mind even more. And like, you know, I hate to say it, but it was like, I was, I was, I was so good at it. And like, I look back on it now and I'm like, it kind of gives me the chills, you know, thinking how well I got away with it for so long. And we got to a point where we were three months away from getting married. And I sat her and her family down and I was like, look, I, I can't get married. And she was like, you know, you're cheating on me, aren't you? I was like, not with, not with what you girl. think I, yeah, not with what you think I'm cheating on you with, and I was like, I've been doing heroin for the last four years, and just watched all their jaws hit the
1: floor, you know. Four years, so you were about nineteen, twenty at this time. Yeah,
2: I was twenty, I was almost twenty-one, and so I sat him down. I was like, I can't do this. Like, I need to go fix my stuff. Like, whatever. I need to do
1: prior to that. I mean, heroin for four years, you don't usually hear of that without it causing some serious trouble in a person's life. Did you get into trouble during those four years? I mean, years? how did you pay for it? I
2: was that functioning addict. Like I had a $21 an hour job. I had a new truck that I bought those paid off and everything. And I was literally that functioning addict. I don't know how I did it. And I was like, working graveyard shifts. Like that's just a concoction for failure right there. Yeah. Like every addict knows that that's like horrible. And I did it for so long and I don't know.
1: So what made you, so why give it up? Why, why did you uh, why come clean? Yeah, yeah. Tell them about it.
2: I think it was just all the guilt. You know what I mean? It was like, she was such an amazing woman and like, I still have love for her to this day. You know, she was, she was my first love and it was like, I just felt like that was the right thing to do. It was like, you've done nothing but like be there for me in our relationship. Like I can't go through with this. I can't do this to you. Like you deserve better than that. And, If you want to still be there when I'm done fixing myself, or at least in the process, then awesome. But I don't blame you for not.
3: So is this the first time you decided to go to a treatment center?
2: Yes, it was. I called my mom and I was like, look, I I need to go to rehab. I was like, I don't have the money for it. I was still on her insurance. And I was like, I'll go wherever you want me to go. I just can't go anywhere in Utah because I'll just have somebody come pick me up. And she was like, all right. And this was a Friday on Saturday she called me and she's like you got a plane ticket tomorrow to go to Oklahoma to a treatment called Narcanon. And I was like, all right, I guess that's far enough, you know. That's pretty far across the country. Far. I don't think yeah. anybody's going to come pick me up, so I was like, okay, I'll go. I drove up that night to my mom's house in Payson and parked my truck there. The next day I got on a plane and went to Oklahoma. Yeah. So and how was, long did you spend there? It was a 6-month program. And it was Intense in a lot of ways. It was Scientology based. Oh, and it's what based? Scientology.
1: Scientology. L. Ron <laughs> Hubbard. Scientology Ron based Hubbard. program.
2: And it was interesting to say the least. The all the all the programs they have. They have a sauna program right when you get there. Your first thirty days is just detoxing. They so pump, you get
1: in the sauna and sweat it out.
2: Yeah. So you sit in the sauna for five hours a day. They pump you full of niacin. And potassium and uh, salt pills, sodium pills, and you sit in a box for five hours. Wow. You sweat everything out, man. Like, I sweated paint chips out of my pores. Like, I watched paint chips come out of my pores from all the nice and they pump you with. Paint I watched, chips? I watched a dude sweat a bullet out of his leg that was lodged in his leg. What? No. From a drug really? dealer. Yeah. I swear wow. on Wow. Wow. It was it was the craziest thing ever. Pain, chips
1: and bullets, huh? You're like it's Sounds the like nice and po-
2: yeah, the nice is supposed to pump everything out. of you. Right, right. Yeah. So it's like they load you up with five thousand milligrams of this stuff. Wow. I mean, so this just, doesn't sound healthy. No, like and that's what I was thinking this <laughs> was whole time. I was tired. like, you know, I guess I'll do it. Like, I guess they know what they're talking about. And like twenty days into it, I'm just like, dude, I don't, I don't think I can sweat anymore.
1: Yeah, you know, like yeah. I've never well, slept that's that, that much trust in my thing life. again. We tend to trust you know when we're younger we tend to trust people that are older uh, right. and we as adults even tend to trust authority figures and right. they they were running the program so you would have thought well they must know what they're doing but yeah i i don't know but that doesn't sound super healthy to me so it, did
3: you do all 6 months
1: yeah i did and do you felt like it helped you i mean that's yeah i stayed clean for 2 years when i got back from
2: that and like you know i don't know what it was but
3: what was harder to stay clear from, the drugs or saunas? <laughs>
2: Probably saunas. You know? I was like, I, I avoided that more like the plague than anything. It was like people like, you want to go to the pool and like send a sauna. I'm like, no, no man, no, no. That's
1: the last thing no. I want to do. Yeah, no more hot but days. Stayed clean for two years.
2: Yeah, and I I got in a relationship when I got back. The relationship I had before didn't work. End up working out. So mm-hmm. I got out. I ended up getting with a girl and. She had a kid, the little boy, and he was six months old and we got together and I just like fell in love with this little boy. And like being dad, I think was what kept me sober, honestly, Mm -hmm. was like feeling like I was taking care of something again, you know? Mm -hmm. And so- You have a
1: template for that in your childhood, right? Yeah.
2: And I feel like it did me a lot of good, like as much as that stuff scarred me, it also like made me mature really fast. So like the things I do now, especially like reflect on that
3: yeah so you were so you met a new girl she had a six-month-old son stayed yep. sober for two
2: years yep and then it ended up not working out and we split up and it was kind of like it was a messy breakup for sure and mm-hmm. she like stopped letting me see him so i was like that broke me you know i was like what am i supposed to do now like that was like my thing for the last two You're years was Like, that. yeah it was like taking care of it him had like,
1: kind of an insta family yeah. and then it was gone right yeah
2: it was like i just needed that constant distraction and that's it was like 2 weeks I think after we split up. I was using it again, just like that.
1: What did you go back to using? I
2: went back to heroin just right away. Okay. That was like just first instinct. Do
3: you remember the conversation you had in your head before you decided to do that? Or do you think you decided
2: to do it long before? I think I it was the conversation honestly. It was just like what do I have to stay sober for? You know, everything's already been taken away like I just lost like my girl, I just lost my little boy, like my family i just had for the last two years now it's like all gone like everything i've been working for so i was like yeah i'm gonna go get high so you run got high yep how long did this run go for this one went for three years and throughout this
3: are you getting in trouble with the law or i got
2: arrested for my first time when i was 24 and it was i got busted for six counts of distribution six counts of possession and then two counts of paraphernalia um it was like a crazy illegal search i got lucky and i only did like six months on the stuff and then i got out and then it was like i stayed sober for three months and i just do the same thing relapse after relapse after relapse after treatment i got put on probation then that's when i got put on probation was 2014 and ever since then i've been on paper how many treatment centers have you been to i'd say six or seven and some of some of the ones I've been to, I've been to them multiple times. I'd say 13 rounds of treatment.
3: 13 rounds of treatment,
2: sometimes yeah. for, would you stay for longer than a week? Sometimes, you know, two weeks, sometimes six months, sometimes a year, you know, and... I felt like I was, like, becoming a professional about it. and there, and there, <laughs> there
3: But there is something to that. I yeah. mean, I was in treatment places with people who had been there for, you know, 13 different treatment centers. And they knew the game. They knew how to talk to the doctors. They knew how to extend it. And, they, and, and right. this is what they do. They go, I'm going to do this. Then I'm going to go back out. Then I'm going to do this. Until one guy goes, I was sitting there. And I think I've told this story on the podcast before. We're in a group meeting. And the dad goes to the son, hey, I just need you to know that this is our last one. And the kid was like, you know, Dad, it's really not the last one until I'm done. And the dad's sharp now because he's been through 13 of them, goes, no, I get that. I just need you to know that we are done. We're completely exhausted our savings. Your mother's working again, and we are done. So it doesn't mean I don't love you. It just means financially we're done. We're tapped out. Right. uh, Because we're not going to do this anymore. And he was setting up boundaries for him and his wife. And and I get that. Did that seem...
1: Harsh or unfatherly to you when you heard that, or did it make sense right away?
3: It made sense to me right away. Yeah, I mean, it, but because
1: I could I, see how that might seem a little bit like, whoa. Well,
3: but it was the fact that he goes, Well, no, I'm not done until we're done. You know, and I was like, No, I get that. I've, yeah. I've been in all these classes yeah. with you, yeah. and we're going to support you and do what we can, but financially, we're tapped out. Yeah. I mean, w- there's no more coming from the stone. You can squeeze it all you want, but it's done.
2: Yeah. It was, it was that conversation a year ago that I had with my mom that got me in to go into sober living. Same Honestly. type of conversation. Oh, yeah. so, I, me- I remember getting out. My dad picked me up from jail, and he was text my mom. She's, and he was like, oh, I picked up our son. You know, he's safe, good. And she's like, here we go again. That was her reply. Here we go again.
3: So on this podcast, sometimes uh, we share
2: somebody's rock bottom. What did your rock bottom look like? My rock bottom was... 2018 and that's when um I was locked up during the birth of my daughter and my daughter was born in prison her mom was in prison when she was pregnant with her and that for me like having that phone call in jail with my mom saying that I was a dad and I was sitting in a cell was like the worst feeling ever
1: so you were in jail and your girlfriend yep was in jail and yep. she gave birth while in jail. She
2: spent all 9 months in there while she was pregnant. I didn't I didn't get to see her belly, like I didn't I didn't get to watch my baby girl, I didn't get to watch my baby be born, you know? And that was rock bottom for me.
1: What did that do to you? What did that I mean, what, how tell that us how did, that made you feel? That destroyed me, man. You know?
2: Like not being there for the most like precious thing of life, you know? And especially not being able to like be a part of it or share it while it's happening like that. I was good for, like, the first six months she was locked up. And then just, like, that pressure and that anxiety and, like, not being there, it just, like, it threw me off. And I started using after, like, six months of her being locked up again. And that's, like, what sent me into that spiral. I was like, I'm not going to be able to watch my baby be born.
3: So you were on the outside while she was on the inside. Yeah. Uh, You were good for about six months, and the pressure got to you. Yeah. And you decided, let's give this a shot again.
2: Yep. Like, after like you're saying it's like after everything i learned from all the treatments yeah it was like i knew it but i just didn't apply it like i just didn't care at the time to apply it i had all the information i just wasn't doing anything with it
3: so then while she's locked up you start heroin again and then you
2: find yourself incarcerated yep and i remember getting that phone call on october 1st well i made the phone call but they had called the jail you know and said you know tell Cameron he needs to call his mom so i called my mom and she was like you know your daughter was just born and it just like, as much as it was amazing feeling, it was like the worst feeling in the world also. So it's like, I'm sitting on a jail phone right now and my little girl's sitting in a hospital and I'm not there. Like,
1: what, yeah. yeah. What, what well, I can't I imagine. I mean, can you imagine Casey not being able to be there?
3: I'm actually trying to wrap my brain around it mm-hmm. and I know what you're feeling. I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, it's pr- probably one of the most proudest you've ever been and probably the most scared and lonely you've ever been Definitely. all in the same sentence.
2: Definitely. Like just that, that first week after that, just like waiting for those pictures, you know, it was just like the worst anxiety and like the greatest joy like I've ever felt It was like that yin yang, you know? And like when I got those pictures, those first pictures of her, it was just like, it was a relief almost just like, okay, I know she's home. I know she's safe. Like this sucks. Like I need to get my stuff together. Like what kind of dad am I sitting in jail right now? All my little girl's out there and she needs me. So when you get out, do you get your stuff together? So I got out, and I had my stuff together. You know, I got out three months before her mom did, so like I had a lot of time with her by myself. She was still with family, you know, just because I, I wasn't in a position to have her, like I just barely got out of lockup. And so I had like a good support system, and it just it went really good until her mom got out, honestly, and me and her were just toxic together. And that's what really screwed me up was like when she got out and she wanted to start using, like she'd been locked up for years. So like she wants to get out and get high. She's like, she's not thinking about this other stuff, you know? And so we use once my mom asked me, she's like, you know, did you relapse? And I was like, yeah, I did. And she was like, all right. So take Harper back over there and you can not have any consequences or I can call your P.O and have you locked up again. So I was like, all right. Like, I'll get my stuff together before, like, I have her. And two days later, I have a DCFS agent show up at my house, and my mom had opened up a case on me. So it was like, I, I felt like it was kind of like a stab in the back almost. Cause it was like out of all people, you know, like all the people, like my mom especially, but it's like the woman that put me in so many, like, crappy situations is like, out of anybody, like, you know, maybe we should have been taken away as kids, you know? Like, that that was scarring for us. Like, why, why are you so protective of her now, but you weren't protective of us, like, mm. like that, you know? Did you um, ask her? I haven't. Like, and that's, you know, over the last two and a half years, I was dealing with DCFS. Like, that's probably been, like, my hardest thing to get over is, like, that resentment. So currently, do you have custody of your daughter? No, I don't. I actually lost my custody battle her mom signed her rights away i went to trial by myself and i'd been clean for a year and they still took my daughter you know said i was an unfit parent they terminated my rights now um her mom's family's adopting her and yeah like i I haven't seen her months i found out on father's day that they terminated my rights so it was like a rough situation you found
1: out that on father's day wow
3: but the fact that you went through all that hard stuff and didn't pick up a needle. Do you understand what a huge victory that is for you and your recovery?
2: It blows my mind every day. Like I never thought I'd get. And to that's a, point. a solid test of your recovery. Yeah, and it all goes towards like how I got clean this time, going to sober living, like having the opportunity to get a scholarship to go there, and just like fixing myself. Tell the
1: listeners what how is sober living different than like a treatment center. Oh, it,
2: it saved my life. If, if I didn't go to sober living when I did, when I first got out and just jump right into it, I wouldn't be sitting here right now.
3: You know, Dr. Matt, a lot of times people will go to a treatment center and get their 30 to 45 days, whatever it is, and come back out. And then they're put back in the exact same situation that put them there. So the environment
1: hasn't changed just because they've changed. been away from and it. And the right? addict
3: now thinks that they've got the tools to deal with the stress and all that other stuff. They're right. living in what they call the pink cloud uh, because everything was taken care of. And they come out and then they're, they're confronted with I mean, real life issues. That happens issues. in
1: mental so the, health hospitals as well. We call it recidivism. Right? Yeah. You just bounce right back.
3: So the benefit of a sober living, whether it's a one-month, three-month, six-month year program, is that it gives you a chance to utilize those skills and baby step your way back into society.
1: It's like a transition so that you can stay clean and sober while you're starting to do life again, right?
3: But they do some things that hold you accountable, like uh, UAs. Uh, they make you go to a certain amount of meetings a week. Uh, you've, you, I mean, you've got to check in with people, and you've got that process group with living with peers who aren't going to let you pull some of your crap, you know what I mean? To understand uh, that have been there, that will go, uh, uh-uh, uh, this doesn't sound right. What's going on? And so they keep you in check. And
1: so it, yeah, it, peer, peer groups are pretty, pretty intense. I, uh, you know, I, they'll, they'll hold you accountable. Right. Yeah. And so, it's the
2: little things, the routines, you know, like you got chores, like you got to make sure stuff's done. Your bed's made all this stuff, you know? So where did you go to treatment this last time? So this time I went to, I am recovery mm-hmm. and it's in Lehigh and, it's an amazing program. It's different than any other program I've ever went to. How many days you do? I did almost seven months there.
1: Wow! What did you connect with? You said I am Recovery is different than other programs. What? And you've been to a lot. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> we, You can speak with authority about different programs. So, what about that program did you connect with? Honestly, like
2: they do so much work to like find the root cause of like your addictions, where they like stem from, where they lie from, you know, and. It's just they focus so much more like on making sure you're mentally all right,
1: so really a lot of psychotherapy, trying to understand your past right. influences triggers,
2: yeah, like during my therapy sessions there, it was like you know almost every session I had it was like I'd get to a point where it was like, dude, I didn't even realize that
1: right self awareness like, starts yeah, to come
2: this is why I've been doing this like this this is what it stemmed from like i I didn't even think that I thought it was from this, you know.
1: I Just love like that. that. Did you see the look on his face when yeah. he was talking about that? That's what you want to see as a therapist. That's genuine, uh-huh. you know, That's like an uh-huh aha moment. moment. Like, it, oh, it really you is. Know, That insight, nothing can motivate change better than personal insight.
3: Right. So you did I Am Recovery seven months, you said.
2: Yep. And I did six months in their sober living from That's, the opportunity that I got from Susan Peterson.
3: And we're going to talk to her in a bonus episode coming up. But what did you find in sober
2: living that you didn't have in in treatment? It was that stability, man. Like being around like all your brothers, like just that family vibe, you know? Like everybody, they're going to hold you accountable, but they also like have your back, you know what I mean? It's supportive. Yeah, and like it just becomes such like a tight-knit group. Like there's – probably not many people I don't talk to from the house anymore, you know? It's a connection. I still stay connected.
1: Well, think about the difference. You said, you know, you've been down in St. George when you were a teenager, come back up and reconnect with old friends and those friends were doing heroin and you ended up doing heroin. Yep. Versus, uh, making connections with other people that have the same goals and values and pushing each other for good, and those guys have helped you stay sober, and I am sure you've helped them as well.
3: I don't know Definitely. who said this, but it's some rich, famous guy, and he goes, you want to see your future? Show me your friends.
1: I've heard that quote before. I don't know who it's by, but it's very true, isn't it? It really That's is. pretty real. You
3: know what I mean? That's You surround yourself – By what you want to be and, you know, what you need. And a good
2: person will bring you up and not hold you down. Right. Like I've gotten to that point now where it's like, you know, if you're not benefiting my life, like why, you know, we can still be acquaintances. But really, if you're not improving my life, you know, or you're not there for me, then what's the point of you being it? It's just too much energy that both of us are wasting.
1: There are a lot of really nice people out there that are doing things that kind of pull you down if you spend too much time with them right mm-hmm. and and there are a lot of really nice people out there that'll lift you up and you're smart to try to surround yourself with people that'll lift you up because my experience is it puts you in a position then to lift others as well have that you noticed does. that in your 13 months of sobriety oh dude it
2: motivates me so much like and especially with my girlfriend you know like she just always reassures me of like how good I'm doing and it's just like You know, my dad does too, and it's just it motivates me so much. And I'm just like, okay, like they see I'm doing good. Like this feels good, you know, having people like give me a pat on the back, you know, instead of worrying about a phone call that it, you know, I might not be alive anymore. Cameron, what does sobriety look like for you now? Sobriety looks like surrounding myself with all the people in my life that are positive. I don't have any negative people in my life right now, and I'm going to stay that way. You know. Looks like making a living for myself, for my family, and mostly just making sure I'm okay so I can do all that. Be the best father I can be, be the best boyfriend or husband in the future, you know, best son. And I know I deserve it, and I know my family deserves it, and, like, that's what sobriety is for me is, like, having that trust back with my family, too.
1: I love it. Dr. Matt, what are your thoughts on today's podcast? Uh, You know, it's not an original thought here, but it's a powerful one, and that is the opposite of addiction is? Connection. And, you know, you're a great example of that. Um, I love the I love sober living programs uh, because they really do provide the opportunity for somebody who's serious about uh, being sober to extend that into practice and practice and practice so that you can start to live a healthy, sober life. So. Um, Actually heal. Yeah, and actually heal. And what I love about uh, the healing you've done uh, from my point of view is the psychotherapy piece. I mean, if we could all spend time, I mean, why do do I meditate? Why do people meditate? It isn't just about, you know, working out your brain, but it's also reconnecting with yourself. A lot of aha moments happen during psychotherapy, during meditation, a lot of self-awareness. And the more self-aware we are, the better we can be. So Good on you. Appreciate you coming in. I, I know there's somebody, somebody's out there listening today that uh, have really connected with, with your story.
2: Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it.
3: And the thing I go back to, Dr. Matt, I, and you know how my brain works. I, I don't have a way to articulate it, but I know <laughs> I'm thinking of Cameron at the age 12 trying meth for the first time and not understanding the contract or the consequences of doing that. Right. And I want to figure out a way to talk to our Kids, because I mean, when we were kids, it was dare, you know, and, and stuff like that. And I still know they got programs, the like dare that.
1: program, yeah, you yeah. know. Uh, but we mad,
3: yeah, but I don't want – because I don't think that young mind can comprehend. Where this no. is going to go,
1: well, part of that is you know uh, abstract reasoning is something that we develop as we go through puberty um, and being part of that is time and seeing you know making connections if I do this it'll lead to that it'll lead to that, but at that age we 're so young that we don 't really have a template for how bad things can be, yeah you know we, we we really don't have experience for that, so a lot of it does have to do with i mean a lot of your I would say theme today is family, for better or for worse. And That's when really it, when family's working well, it's great, isn't it? And right. I include friends in that. You know, family can be our friends as well. And so, back to your point, um, know you your know, kids you, friends. You, yeah, know your kids' friends. Uh, talk openly about these things, um, even if you can't imagine your son or daughter would ever get involved in this, they can, and you should talk to them. About it, see what their opinions and thoughts are. Ask them which of their friends are smoking weed. If your kid's 10 years old, he or she has friends smoking weed. 10
0: Definitely. years old.
1: That's happening right now. That's crazy. And so talk to them about it. Be, it demonstrate a non judgmental conversation. And uh, that right there will hold kids because they can't really imagine the outcomes, but you can. And, right. and if you're connected and close with them, that might be enough to keep them away from that sort of thing.
3: And just remember, addiction doesn't discriminate. No, It not doesn't at all. care what job you have, what religion you are, how much money you have, where you live. It doesn't matter. If it can get you, it will get you. Yep. Hey, thank you for listening to the podcast today. We really do appreciate it. Don't forget that uh, Project Recovery is brought to you by our friends at KnowYourScript.org. And Project Recovery is a KSL podcast.
0: KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was
1: tear-gassed and beaten.
0: Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds.